huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. This is an audio-only exclusive. I've lost count now how many times people have asked me about Stephen Bartlett and does he pay for guests and... What's the beef with Stephen Bartlett? I'm not one for bashing people, especially people I know and like, but I did have to lay out the truth about Stephen Bartlett in this episode. So in this episode, I'm interviewed by the hosts of the Podcasters Podcast. We talked a lot about Andrew Tate and how he's dominated content and social media. And I went on quite a hardcore rant about unethical sponsors and who I would never have as a sponsor and opened up about how much money I make on podcasting and social media. So here's the exclusive audio-only episode of me being interviewed on the Podcasters Podcast. In this episode, eight-figure entrepreneur Rob Moore reveals exactly how he made his millions through his podcast disruptors. He lifts the lid on that Chris Eubank episode and exposes the secrets behind some of the world's biggest creators like Stephen Bartlett. This is genuinely one of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded of the Podcasters Podcast, and you definitely don't want to miss it. Rob reveals the social strategies on how he became one of the biggest creators on the planet, deep dive into how he's monetized his podcast, and he even reveals his bank balance after interviewing Andrew Tate and shows exactly how much he made. You don't want to miss this episode. So without further ado, here it is. Hey guys, welcome back to the Podcasters Podcast. Today, me and Kane are joined with Rob. Now, Rob is the first podcast we ever launched here at Progressive Media eight years ago in January. So thank you very much for coming on, Rob. How are you? Pleasure. Look at you boys with your microphones. Well, you know, <laughs> we upgraded recently. You know. It's still a bit fancy nowadays. <laughs> I have to get some, uh, some extra ones. for this Yeah, we're not used guests. to guests, that's why. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're they're used to hosts. us just blabbering about crap. Mine's tiny. How about microphone? How do you feel about eight years? Um, wow, yeah, I feel like I'm a dinosaur of the podcasting world. Hopefully, you know, top of the food chain dinosaur. Yeah, Yeah, I've seen a lot in the eight years. Um, I'm proud of our consistency. Must be just in Disruptors, thousand episodes. I mean, we have our money podcast as well, which must be pushing 300. So I'm really proud of the consistency. I mean, I'm always pushing for more, as you know. So, you know, it would always be nice to get a certain level of guests or hit a certain number of downloads. It's always good to have a target to push towards. Um, But the game's changed as well. You know, if you think about when I started podcasting, there was no TikTok. Instagram didn't have all the reels that it does now. Facebook doesn't have the reels. Your show was very one-dimensional. You know, you would do your audio. You wouldn't do video and YouTube with it. So, yeah, the content game's really changed. Hopefully, I'm going to learn a bit from you boys. Maybe. One or two things, we'll see. I'm very proud to say this episode is sponsored by AG1. As you know, we're more than 1,000 episodes into Disruptors, and I very rarely have sponsors. I'm really choosy on sponsors, and I only pick people that I love myself and I use myself. 
I have turned down loads of sponsors, but personally, I've been using AG1 for nearly 14 years myself before we ever did a sponsorship deal with them. For me, AG1 really helps with my mental focus, clarity, and overall well-being. As someone who's really freaking busy and can't always sit down and eat a million vegetables in a day, knocking back a big pint full of AG1 in the morning is perfect for me. Of course, health is wealth, and I'm in my mid-40s. I'm realizing that more and more. So if you'd like to try AG1 yourself with a special exclusive offer that I have for you right now, go to drinkag1.com forward slash disruptors. That's drinkag1.com forward slash disruptors and get a free year supply of vitamin D3, K2 and five travel packs with your first purchase on me. So one more time, that's drinkag1.com forward slash disruptors. AG1, thanks for sponsoring the show. You are legends. All right, so hundreds of thousands of subscribers, millions of views, millions in revenue. What is the, the goal? How, does it, how do you keep yourself motivated after eight years? Yeah, well, one year we hit 200 million downloads and views in a year, which, you know, for a, for a boy from Peterborough, um, felt pretty good. It's difficult with being driven by metrics because like, if I get too obsessed about metrics, it sends my emotions all over the place. You know, you have a viral video and you walk like you've got two big microphones. <laughs> like that. And, and then when, you, you know, the algorithm's not really liking you or you've got a shadow ban or you're demonetized because these ha things happen from me to time to time because I'm quite vocal, it can feel a bit blur. So really all I should think about is the impact I have on people. Um, I mean, obviously I want to be able to finance a nice lifestyle and I want to be able to grow this business we have here. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking more about impact now than income. I, I love it when I did about 15 one-to-one -one calls in the car last week and so many people right now are overwhelmed. It's just a massive confusion. There's so much opportunity, but so much confusion. And for me to say, no, 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 move that away, that away, and that away. What do you know more than others? Or I launch a membership site on that and launch a podcast on that and then do daily Facebook lives and then repurpose them onto Instagram and TikTok. Just do that an hour a day and all of a sudden, you know, your life can change quite quickly. So, yeah, more about impact for me than income. So your goals have changed over the eight years. What about your actual approach to the content and how you do it? Do you feel that with the likes of TikTok, YouTube, the way you approach recording podcasts and creating content's changed? Oh, yeah, it's changed, like, dramatically. And I, I must admit, I, I have, like, mental Aikido about this um, because I love long form. And I think it takes time to warm up in content. Um, I, I like two-hour kind of episodes where you can really go deep. Um, but now the world was... And everything's so highly edited. And, I mean, you've got to change with the times. So um, I would say I think content has got a bit more empty, more distracted. I would say it's got a little bit more vacuous, polarised, argumentative. 
um, noisy, but lacking in, in real depth. Um, but at the same time, there's so many monetization tools on all these channels which are highly competitive against each other, which actually can really work for us. You know, you've got in-stream ads on Facebook, you've got supporters on Facebook. There's like five different ways to monetize on Facebook. And then you've got subscribers on Instagram and, you know, you can earn through gifts and you can earn on in-stream ads there. And then YouTube's obviously big for monetization. Podcasting, so many ways to monetize podcasts. I mean, you guys talk about it all every day, but, you know, getting sponsors or driving people to your membership site or driving people through the funnel in your business. So I think that the key thing is probably knowing what your specific but vague niche is. So mine is business entrepreneurship money. Help start and scale up entrepreneurs, make, manage, and multiply money. Get your tax bill down, get your income streams up, build multiple streams of income, cash in on the crash. So you could say, well, that's quite specific, but you could also say that's very broad. I mean, you know, I, I imagine 500 million people would be keen on that. So get clear on that. Then you want to find out, okay, what's, what's the best format for you to create content that feels authentic and, and flows quite well. Me sitting in the studio doing, you know, really short form content, I find it really hard, but just sitting down and chatting and being interviewed and getting good questions and being challenged, I could do that all day. So let's say my favorite form is like long form interview, then work out how to take the best bits and turn one piece into 50 and then just you've just got to be prolific on social media you know I, i'm not particularly a perfectionist um and that has its downsides but one of the upsides of that is i'm prepared to try stuff you got to test titles all the time test thumbnails all the time you've got to be really fast um it's the quick and the dead so i don't really know if that answers your question I don't even know what the question was. <laughs> so around but, but, how you, but I've got all day. Yeah. <laughs> around how your contents change your approach. So that does kind of answer. I get the the idea that now you say you like these deep conversations, but sometimes you might ask a question thinking that'll make a good clip, or thinking about the end result when you're actually in the situation. Yeah. So yeah. Like if I had my way on my podcast, I'd talk about business entrepreneurship success, routine, dealing with the struggle, dealing with all the demons in your mind. Um, but they're not, when we look at our TikTok and what goes viral and I interview someone like Katie Hopkins, I, I ask her, how many genders are there? And that'll get 17 and a half million views. And for me, that's not particularly artistic or deep or meaningful. You know, it's a bit triggering and a bit gimmicky. But, you know, because I've interviewed a load of very famous people and I have these deep discussions about being an algorithm whore and then your true art form. What do you want to do that makes you feel authentic and you love your life and you're passionate about it and you have deep and meaningful connections? This is your art form. But there's no point spending hours and loads of money doing that and then no one watching it. So also... What newsjacking can you do? You know, I've been doing a lot of lives on this Russell Brand case and it's just been going wild. And sometimes I think, you know, I don't want to seem like I'm just sort of jumping on the Russell 
brand bandwagon. So I've got to try and be creative in jumping on titles and themes that everyone's talking about. Um, what's, there's these, I ask these car guys all the time about what's the most nicked car. And they talk about the Range Rovers being nicked in London. And it just, it just guaranteed 5 million views. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, this isn't changing the world, this content. But if people want it and you've got, you know, you've got education and you've got entertainment and sort of as an entrepreneur, finding where you fit in that edutainment, where, where, you know, where's the middle line? Because I don't want to be gimmicky. I want to be credible. But I want to be seen by a billion people. I guess ultimately you want those short form clips and those viral clips to bring people in that will then consume the deeper content. So you bring them in with the, not gimmicky, but the stuff that maybe isn't what you want to talk about, but it will get views. For Sell yourself 10% yeah, of your content. For them, <laughs> them to come in, okay, now actually listen to the podcast and full, get more of a deeper meaning out of the content. Yeah, well, if you look at someone like Andrew Tate, you know, he has... You know, he has his core message, which might be, you know, work hard, don't be a bitch. Um, you know, take full personal responsibility, making money is easy, being on, an entrepreneur. But then he'll talk about anything and everything. You know, he'll have him and a female and they'll have like a, a flirt off. Um, and, and he will just talk about anything and everything. And I think... 15 years ago, that would have been too scattergun an approach to build a, a business. But now I think you want to have your core message and you might just decide 70% of your content is on your core message. And then 30%, just talk about anything and everything. Go on different types of shows. I went on the Sinners podcast. I saw, I saw some, some clips. clips. <laughs> I had to ask him to take some of that down. And really? I, just because I just overshared. <laughs> Doesn't sound like you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember Tino editing it and she was, she was laughing. I was like, what are you laughing at? And she showed us the clips. I was like, oh, that's different. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, you can always delete it. Yeah. You never really know where it's going to go. Um, so maybe 30%, you give that bit of freedom to, I mean, I'll, as long as it's a good return on my time invested, I'll, I'm not really too selective on the type of podcast I'll go on. Um, I want to reach a, you know, a new audience all the time. You never know whose life you're going to change. I think sometimes people are a bit, they get in their own way and they get a bit stuck and this is my niche and I've got to be really clear and got to be really specific and got to be really focused. But because of that, they, they don't put enough volume out. You've got to have conversations and be creative and chuck it out there. Continually, though, look at your analytics. L look at your click-through rates on your thumbnails or your headlines. Look at the retention you know, and see where you get the big spikes and the big drops. Go, get into the comments and talk to people and find out about what they want. I mean, someone I interviewed, Rich Cooper, he, he's called Entrepreneurs in Cars, and he was, you know, that's his, his entrepreneurship and cars. And now he's, all he's talking about is dating and women and don't get married and don't get divorced and all, all this high-value man and alpha, sigma, male stuff. And I'm sure even he's thinking, how the fuck did I get over here? But he gets in his comments, he has a look, he sees what people want, and all of a sudden, you know, and it's grown him pretty big. But you, you've got to get that balance right where you don't want to feel that you're so far left field that it's just not authentic to you. 
but the, the, you need to allow yourself some experimentation, especially if you're quite a creative person. Like, I don't mind following some formulas, but I don't like being shackled. I want to have some freedom of expression. With um, your rebrand, so you went from disruptive entrepreneur to disruptors. So I'm assuming part of that is you started interviewing people that weren't just entrepreneurs, mainstream celebrities, athletes. Is there part of you that feels like you moved because there's an addiction to to those views. You, you look at the analytics, you see what works. Some of the more nitty gritty, hardcore um, business stuff works great in my membership site, works great in my events, but not as well on podcast as interviewing an Andrew Tate or, or Katie Hopkins. Have you? Do you feel like you're victim of that a little bit of pivoting to where the views were? No, actually. I mean, I'm very self-critical, so I'll happily critique myself honestly on this show. But the real reason I went from disruptive entrepreneur to disruptors is because I really liked some of the fascinating guests that I met and, and some of the open, expressive, interesting conversations. And I didn't want to be hamstrung into millionaires and billionaires and how many dragons are, can, you, can you interview on Dragon's Den? And in the end, you end up sweating quite a lot of content where you'll end up just in the end, saying the same thing over and over. Um, so, no, I went wider. One, because I wanted the freedom of expression. Two, because I thought I could get some interesting left field and quirky guests. Because um, I do like surprising my audience. And um, we've had some sort of quirky, interesting guests, which aren't always the most thorough, hardcore, deep and intense content, but they're very entertaining and people talk about them a lot. So it was for breadth and expression. I mean, sometimes I think if I'd have stayed disruptive entrepreneur and just interviewed millionaires and billionaires, you know, maybe, maybe I might be more successful. Or I might, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, yada, 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 who knows? Um, but no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really that much of an algorithm whore. I, I, I'll always try and create content that I think is interesting and creative, disruptive, engaging, provoking. And I won't be swayed too much by copying other shit that's going viral or whatever. I, I, I'll, I'll kind of try anything really. So no, I think it was just breadth and expression. Are there yeah. any guests you regret having? Well, I mean, it always sucks when you put a lot of love into your work and the reach is low. That always sucks. Chris Eubank was a complicated one. <laughs> um, because that was the opposite though right the reach was quite good on that one yeah but it gave me a lot of moral dilemmas um i mean i i i analyze things a lot in my mind it might not look like it when i'm out in the world of business but in my mind i'm i analyze things all the time and you know he was obnoxious abrasive confused he didn't look all that well um and there was a lot of pushback. Oh, you know, Chris isn't mentally very well. He's mentally ill. You should take that down. And I didn't really know what to do because I thought, well, isn't that the job of his inner circle? Isn't that the job of his agent? Isn't that the job of his family? Um, 
what support is he getting? What's my job? And, you know, I thought I was quite kind to him, considering how aggressive he was to me. Um, and I actually think it's a really interesting piece of content. And I think a lot of good things could come from it, hopefully, for Chris as well. I'm not a doctor either. You know, I, d I don't know. I mean, he, I think he had a shitload of weed in his bag. Mm -hmm. So, you could know. Just smell I, it. Could you? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely interesting. That was a bag he wouldn't show you. Right? No, yeah, that was the one he wouldn't show me, but you could definitely smell it. So, yeah, that, I don't really regret anything. I mean, there's, there's probably 12, 15 episodes we've got which we haven't published, which I just don't think maybe the quality is there. I think maybe it's a little bit gimmicky or the guest wasn't really open. They were a bit closed. They didn't give much away. Yeah, I don't really think there's anyone I could name and shame, but, I mean, everyone should go and watch that Chris Eubank one and give, give me your thoughts in the comments because it's a, it's a mind-bender, that one. It is the strangest video I've ever watched. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, the, the growling... Really? Barking, kind of. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it was when Harry came back from the shoot and he was like, I, I don't know what I've just seen. Yeah. <laughs> no, what has just happened? He looked like a defeated man that yeah. day, didn't he? Yeah, but I mean, it was probably my best experience as an interviewer in terms of testing my skills. You know, I feel like I could adapt now to a lot of difficult situations as an interviewer, having experienced that. Because mm. I think, I don't know how much you talk about interviewing on your show but it's it's a proper skill and i've been a public speaker for many years made a really good living out of it and done a lot of them hundreds of speeches world record, world record for the longest speech twice um but interviewing is I, I thought well you know i can public speak i'll be good at interviewing it's a completely different skill stay present stay engaged you know, know what question's coming next in your mind, but still listening to what's being said, knowing where to push, knowing where to back off. It's, it's a really interesting art form. You say great guests are pointless if you're a shit host, which is true. If you have a really good guest on, you want to be able to get that great information out of them without just asking surface level stuff that every other podcast they've been on, they've been asked the same thing, right? Yeah. How much research do you do when going into a guest? Because some of them, when you get bigger names like you have, they've done the rounds and you need to differentiate from somebody who's had them on first. How do you do that? Um, well, I have the research team and I get them to research a load of questions. Um, and some of them are, are maybe a bit more thoughtful and left field. And then others, I can see that, you know, they're, they're looking for the short form repurposing. Because, you know, like you said earlier, the way the game has changed now is sometimes you're dropping a question in because, you know, you've got some good data to suggest that that will go really well on TikTok. And, you know, I have sort of quick fire questions and throw in some left field questions, which might seem a bit fractious in the context of just the interview. But if you look on the social media, you can, you can kind of see what I've pulled out. Um, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> so you do know I'm off coffee. Yeah, <laughs> giving up coffee. How's it going, by the way? It was fucking hard. Really? Yeah, I mean, I got cocky the first day because I didn't really get any headaches and I'd been getting really cloudy 
distracted thoughts. My brain couldn't really catch on to anything. Um, and I was, yeah, I was a bit worried about it. So um, first thing to test was coming off coffee. And I think it's about day five now. Yeah, really confused, man. It's Is it getting worse? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it, it will obviously be a lot better in a lot of ways. Everyone says it's good. Um, and I, I used to drink sort of eight shots a day. Um, which I think is a reason, reasonably high amount, but it's just that interim process. Everything just seems grey, and my thoughts just don't seem as fast and as incisive. But trying to grab a cloud, how do you grab a cloud? Is this how you bang men? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is our replication. Well, we, no. we could um, we could make this a very esoteric podcast if you want. Um, you know, I, I think about what's going on in my mind and I think there must be a lot of really big upsides to this. You know, I think life is so complicated and it's so nuanced and it's so technical and there are 17 billion variables in everything that you could think and decide and having this different, slower thought process I can definitely understand how people need me and my fast, decisive, incisive, normal thought process. And I can also see the value in thinking slower and taking your time and being pensive and trying to think, figure things out and not rush and go into things too fast. So, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting experiment. But anyway, what was your, what was your question back in 1985? Yeah, <laughs> how do you make the most of good guests? What's your research process? How do you make sure your content is not the same as somebody else? So my team go out and do a load of research and they're looking for uh, some virality on the shorts and then some interesting left-field questions. And then I'll go and take some of them and sit down with a couple of my team members and, and thrash out, well, oh, that's a bit gimmicky. That's not interesting enough. That's a good question. Um, I will go and do research and find out the common stuff on Wikipedia and YouTube and then take that out to try and ask something a bit different. Um, and, then, and then sometimes I don't like to be too heavily researched because I think when, like I see people like reading stuff on interviews and they're not fully engaged and, and, and it's, it's quite rigid. And I like it to be quite free. And some of the best things that have happened in interviews have been when I haven't been overly set on a certain amount of questions. I remember interviewing Dorian Yates in the early days, and I was so set on getting all my questions answered and the specific ones that I wasn't really engaged with him. And it was a really hard interview. And I sort of kept interrupting him because I wasn't able to fully be present to work out when he'd actually finished. Because, you know, sometimes as an interviewer, it's hard to know when someone's actually finished and you don't really want to interrupt them, but sometimes you need to. I mean, we had Teddy Atlas. This was a weird one. Um, I actually, it was, a weird, it was just surreal because I, I asked him a question. I can't remember what it was. What's your name? It doesn't really matter. It was just a really generic question. And we were about 20, 25 minutes in and I was thinking, he's not breathing to let me in. Uh, you know, it's just like this most random, weird, chaotic monologue. And about 25 minutes in, I thought, I'm probably not going to publish this. But I sat there and thought, I wonder what could be the record for the longest question. And I just sat and listened to him. And after about an hour and 15 minutes, I just said, um, so that's it, time up. And he was like, oh, uh, oh, 
and I asked one little intro question and he just gave an hour and 15 minute like diatrage monologue of nothingness. If you were to do that again, would you have interrupted him? It's, on Zoom, it's really fucking hard. Oh, it's the delay. I don't, right. like, don't like Zoom, really. I mean, I do it only because I have to. But yeah, there's the delay and yeah. Um, it depends where they are in the world as to how good the connection is. Um, yeah, so we haven't published that yet. I don't know what we're going to do with that. Maybe one day we will, but yeah, that was on another level of weird. Compilation of Rob's worst interviews. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> <That's laughs> yeah. great to watch. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. <laughs> Tell me about Andrew Tate then. Do you reckon that was good or bad for your channel? Well, I mean, everything has upsides and downsides. To, so to say um, good or bad is nuanced. Makes a great clip though, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what was good was he blew our channel up. We earned 37000 in one month from uh, his episode. It was really good for monetization. Um, it got tens of thousands of new people to, to see us. Yeah, the channel was on a roll because we had Chris Eubank straight after Andrew Tate. And then I think we had Katie Hopkins. And it was just, we were just on a fucking roll. Um, and so it was a great moment in time. Everyone was talking about it. Um, I, you know, met a lot of really interesting people through him and that episode. Down uh, mil millions of views uh, across all media. Who knows? But um, w it really hurt our TikTok channel. They, the videos kept getting banned. We got um, we our main video got a demonetization, I think for, I don't know. I mean, what they tell you and what actually is true, who fucking knows? Um, but so it flew to like one and a half million and then just died and just stopped. And it probably would have been at six to eight million by now. And it's probably stuck at the main one. We've got other edits that are more. We've got other edits that are three million, two million. Um, but yeah, it, it, it really hurt a lot of our channels. I mean, I'd do it again. I'm already a agreed to go see him in early December. I'd, I'd do it all over again. I think he's a fascinating human. Um, I mean, I'm not as... I think a lot of people are very principled and judgmental. I'm not really. I'm, I'm relatively open to listening to people, and I think you, you can't exist in your own echo chamber and this is right and this is wrong. You, you've got to be open to hearing other people's viewpoints and ask them challenging, difficult questions. So... There's probably not that many people I wouldn't interview. We'd have interviewed David Icke. We've got Katie Hopkins round three coming up soon. Obviously, Andrew Tate round two. I don't mind going to these controversial guests. It pisses people off as well. You know, you lose some clients and people get really fucking principled and uppity. And that's fine. They've got their own reasons for that. Um, but yeah, it, it, Andrew Tate's in one of our top five all-time guests. If you look at all the things around it, the virality, the metrics, the monetization how many people were talking about it. It was right up there. It was perfect timing as well, right before he went to prison, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. Right at the peak. Yeah. Kind of yeah, I mean, he's just been on Piers. Because he, he, I've been talking to him for months since he's out. He's just been on Piers and he said, look, I've got to do that, but you're getting an exclusive and I'm going to go hard on... He believes he's not really been fully able to express himself. He's been um, sort of straight jacketed because of all the stuff that's going on with his lawsuit. He's there's He's pissed off with himself and he wants to come and be able to say everything that he wants to say. 
and he says he's given me a good exclusive on that. So let's see. That's exciting for you. Well, let's see. We'll I'm sure it'll go wild and I'm sure it'll fuck up all my yeah. channels as well. <laughs> I'm going to need to give you guys a lot more money. Is this just once a year? We're going to have to like pull you out of a shadow ban. Yeah. Rob's <laughs> yeah. banned again. Yeah. Um, so that's inspired me for this question, right? Because we often get people say, the biggest benefit of podcasting that they didn't expect is the relationships they've built with the people they've had as guests. Now you're over a thousand episodes in, nearly eight years. You must have had some really, really big either business deals or relationships from your guests. What are some of the, the highlights in that, in that sense, some of the best relationships you've built with people that have been on your podcast? Yeah, um, honestly, in the early years, I wasn't very good at that. And I just let my team do that. You've got quite a big team here. Um, and I have a lot of things going on. So I would let them do all of that preamble and communication. And, and now I make a thing whereby I'm going to make sure we swap phone numbers and I'm going to stay in touch. I mean, it usually ends up costing me a lot of money. So when I um, had Carl Hartley on my show, I bought a 1989 Porsche 911 Turbo That's that cost me, cost me 125 grand. It's the, the podcast was free. And the car, <laughs> yeah. 125 grand for the car. It's good fun, all that. Yeah. <laughs> then I went back for a round two and I bought an Audi RS Q8 for, what, 109. But he's begging you for a round three, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a lot of really amazing people in my black book. I, I don't really push hard to ask them for stuff because I, I, I don't really need it. Um, yeah. And I like to be quite discreet as well, because you know, if you brag about all these things you do with all these big celebrities, they, they just feel used and I don't want them to feel used. Um, but yeah, I've, I got invited to go to the Mercedes Formula One factory. I always get invited to all these Alexander McQueen special events. I got an Access All Areas pass to um, this big rock gig that we went to and these are all you know guests that I, I stay in touch with there's some quite cool things they take me to the Cannes Film Festival and um yeah you get schmoozed up a bit yeah but I I, I am I want to be respectful and you know I don't really like how people use celebrity names to make themselves look better as a gimmick i want to build quite quite long lasting friendships so would i if i was getting invited to all of those places <laughs> <laughs> yes. you don't take me anywhere nice <laughs> i want to go to the f1 <laughs> all right let's go to money as when somebody says money i think of you what's the most amount of money you've made from a single video well, that's, a, that's difficult to say, isn't it? Because of all the different channels that you repurpose it on. Um, and then where do people go from that video into what verticals and funnels that you have? So if you're excluding funnels, because that's hard to track, you're just looking at partner programs, YouTube revenue, sponsorship, stuff like that. I mean, the Andrew Tate one was about 37,000 we made in that month. Um, Facebook could is usually about ten grand a month. TikTok about six grand a month. My sponsors pay anywhere from six grand to one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. 
the membership site off the back of it does anywhere from sort of 55 grand a month up to I think 215 grand in one month was our best month. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, there's a lot of channels and it's a bit all over the place. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a really good living for sure. So you've just named five income streams and, you know, you said even within Facebook, there's sort of two or three and, you know, TikTok are bringing out more. They've got the partner program, but they've got shop that you could eventually utilize or payments from lives. And we haven't even mentioned your training business, which is where you get a ton of leads come in from your content, all of the books. So you're up to sort of seven income streams. What would you say on an average year you'd be taking home from the brand? Oh, they're so... They're so entwined with each other. If you've got, if you've got Rob Doc Team as a membership site, so many of those people then go on to spend thousands and thousands on, yeah. say, courses, et cetera, which is then makes it so hard to track. This year, we'll probably do about 23 million in sales from the training business, something like that. I would probably say, and this is a bit of a stab in the dark, and even if I got all the profit and losses up, it is still so, well, you, you, no, Kane, it's so intertwined. You know, I was looking at data yesterday and, you know, my content make, might have made progressive success £375,000 here or £425,000 there for introductions it's made. Mm. For, because your content is a serious business and if you're smart with where you send the people, you can make a great living. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stab in the dark at twenty five percent of those of that twenty three million Asian sales would be fairly directly or relatively indirectly from my brand. So those are just leads into your business. That doesn't even include the like ad revenue and sponsorship revenue and things like that, which is a, so. A what did I so what? That's about six million, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean that would in, that would include the membership sites, all the different subscriptions and sponsors and in-stream ads, and then the next stage of people joining courses and masterminds with us. Six million a year. Sorry, not a bad living, that. Do you know what? I'd probably take you to the Formula One if I was in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there Egan takers? Oh yeah, but believe you me though. I think we'll have yeah, to get there's a lot of expenses in that six million. I'm not taking five point nine in profit. So of course. So this is a question I've wanted to ask you a while, actually. So you know, you and your business partner Mark, thousand odd tenants, three hundred and fifty-ish properties. Why did you make the conscious effort to move from property to podcast, from physical assets to digital assets? Because it seems like you spend. 100 hours a week on your brand and content and podcasting and everything you're doing. You're prolific. Why did you make the change? Well, here's the thing. I am prolific, but I still have to divide my time between a few verticals. And so what I've done with my content is probably only 30% of what I could do. What if I did it full time? What if I didn't have progressive property, progressive success? You know, managing the team, the vision, the property business. How big could that be? And I sometimes ask myself that because even though the social media is deemed to be big and I'm deemed to be prolific, um, it's not the biggest chunk of my time. 
and, and in another in another life, I'd definitely like to give it a full on go. Um, so that's a bit of context. Can you say the question again? Why did you change from property to podcasting or physical assets to digital assets? So reason number one is in around 2016, I did about 250 speaking days in that year. And when I do a speaking day, it's not 90 minutes. It's eight or nine hours. And I love public speaking. I love delivering the courses and the content, which is one reason why I built my own brand because I love it more than tenants and boilers and gas safety checks and mortgage brokers and surveyors and Japanese knotweed and all the other shit you get with property. So it definitely was a passion move. I, it was also a skill set move. You know, I'm good at speaking and marketing and content and engagement. I'm not so good at analytics and research and legal and operational. So it was also a, a skill set move. Um, but we realized quite quickly that I couldn't do that every year because I would burn out because I had some really weird out-of-body experiences. And, and yeah, you know, I always used to think, I always, always do think it's hard to burn out doing something you love, but you can physically burn out even if you don't mentally burn out. You know, I think your body's a fair bit weaker than your brain. And I was just fucked. <laughs> and we were, we were probably at, I don't know, I'm going to say, Three million in sales. We're at what twenty? Maybe we'll hit twenty-three, twenty-two-ish this year. Not year's not finished yet. So, how on earth are we going to scale to ten, twenty? Because I can't do any more. So I made the strategic move to step back from speaking, create all the systems and processes, and train up trainers and get some of our best students from all of our verticals and get them on a train the trainer program and train them up. And now we have seven, eight, nine great partners. And, you know, if, if, if I do six, well, they're doing 15 plus. And, and we've got, it's, it's been a great way to really grow the business. Um, and in order to grow the business, your, your name has to be removed from the business. So if it's Robert Mark and Progressive Property, and Progressive Property is all about Robert Mark, then Kevin McDonald or Kevin Paneskis or what other trainers we have, they don't have any credibility. So I had to completely remove myself from that brand. I mean, people don't really so much think about me in the property world like they used to. It's money, business, entrepreneurship and content. And that was a strategic move. So that um, the, the business could operationally grow, but from a brand perspective, it wouldn't suffocate itself or I wouldn't overshadow everyone or I wouldn't be needed at every event. And so with that rebrand and redirection, I was able to think, I had almost like a blank slate. What do I want to do? How do I want to be known? Um, and I, you know, I think that there's nowhere near enough education around money taught in schools. I think how the system works is not really for the good of the people and people need to be really wise and savvy to how the money system works if you want to be personally, independently wealthy. And so that became my new mission to help people start their own businesses and be entrepreneurs and at, at least understand how the money system works so they can get the tax bill down and their income streams up. And, um, and so it was, quite, it was quite strategic. It wasn't really accidental. And so on, in 2016, I wrote Life Leverage, which was my first non-property book, and I launched Disruptive Entrepreneur, which was my first non-property-related new channel. And so they sent me on a, a different 
trajectory. That being said, I can still pass a lot of business back over to progressive property. You know, if I do any lives on cashing in on the property crash or um, whether you should rent or buy your own home or whether you should pay down your mortgage, it goes wild on my channels. And that sends a lot of interested people to progressive property. Um, but if you want to grow a business, you have to let go to grow and it can't be reliant on you. And if it's, all, if it's reliant on you and your name, then it, it's always going to be small. You can never sell it either. No, I mean, I don't, we don't have any major plans to sell. We're definitely trying, we've, we're trying to be bigger than we are. We're kind of a small to medium-sized business. It depends on your definitions. Um, but even if you don't sell, you want to have a fairly well operationally run, systemized business that doesn't take highly expensive or highly skilled people to run it. Um, and having been an entrepreneur 17 years here, we're definitely looking into streamlining our business. So if we get a, um, a ridiculous offer, I don't know what the Americans call it, a fuck you offer, is it? Um, <laughs> Sounds it, about right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if we get an offer that we can't refuse, I want to be ready in case. Because, you know, the, the markets go up and down. Sometimes the multipliers are five times profit. Sometimes they're 15 times profit. They go up and down. One day, we'll get a big offer. And I, I want to be ready for that. I suppose if your personal life changes where you go, I want to now leave, you don't want then the years of work to build those systems to then be able to in three, four years, I suppose you want to be able to be like, okay, next chapter now. Full-time creator, obviously. Yeah, well, I, I always thought I was invincible and I would never stop. And I had all this energy and desire. And I see Mark as he's got older and his desires have changed. He doesn't quite have the same energy in certain aspects of our business. You know, COVID was hard and everything. Um, but we have to see how this coming off coffee goes. Because mm. it's definitely really made me think, fuck, is there something wrong with my brain? And, you know, I, in, as an entrepreneur, you need good brain health. You need to be sharp focused and so yeah um i probably i'm 44 i feel young maybe I, that's a problem i feel younger than i actually am but yeah you probably do i mean you know look i've got loads of money stashed here there and everywhere i'll, I'll be fine for many lifetimes but still you know at, at times i've moved away from the business and i've seen it wobble um and i don't i want it to be strong rigid, um, impenetrable without me. Um, but, you know, you, you would have seen a couple of things that have happened in the business or in marketing or with certain hires can really fucking wobble things around. Um, yeah, and then all that happens is you have to get really heavily involved again. Um, but I wouldn't be doing anything else. You know, I love what I do, so. Good stuff. So... Our audience is primarily people looking to improve their podcast, looking to start one at a much earlier stage than you. A lot of them will be taking inspiration from your story, what you've done, trying to replicate it. But if anything, what do you do now that you wouldn't recommend a new podcaster? What wouldn't I recommend a new podcaster do? That you're doing currently with your podcast. I'd probably be a little bit more focused on your niche. I, I probably am a bit broad. So I'd probably, I'd probably be a bit clearer on that especially if you want to get to your first hundred grand or your first million, you can be quite hyper-niched. 
and have a really clear identity to be a really go-to person for a specific thing. And I, 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 my brand's a bit wider and therefore a bit more vague than that, but I have a bigger reach. So yeah, I'd probably be a bit more focused on, on the niche. Um, I wouldn't overcomplicate all the tech. You know, I'd get an iPhone and create content on, on your iPhone. Um, I, I wouldn't spend thousands on equipment like a lot of podcasters do to try and have really high production. Probably try and get a good agency, you know, an agency that um, can manage all the hosting, uploading, editing, show notes, all this stuff which is necessary but time-consuming because you should be focusing on creative content, how to go viral, um, and you know, how to get more, more content out there. The thing with content is it can stay up for quite a long time and you've got this quite wide web. And the more you create this bigger wide web you have, and Harry, who runs our YouTube, is always like, wow, this video from three years ago is all of a sudden getting loads of views, and this one from five years ago is all, all of a sudden getting loads of views. If you don't put regular content out there, you don't have this, this web and, and these assets. Um, if you can help it, I'd probably avoid certain subjects as well, like COVID. Bleep. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, you know, the banking system and who runs the world and the Illuminati and the Rothschilds. And, so look at yeah, Rob's channel. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you, you, don't your do any of it. <laughs> um, and Big Pharma. Yeah. Yeah, like, look, we need people like me and like Russell Brand and like Andrew Tate who are prepared to be bold and stand up and speak out, even if it's of great risk to them. We need people like them. But if it's not you, well, you don't have to do it. You can play a bit. Look how safe Mr. Beast is. Um, and he's massive. And he just, you know, there's going to be no advertiser problems. Yeah, it's just safe. Um, obviously, he's bloody good. But yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be as. If I could be less extreme, I would. But the, my principles won't let me because I think this, like, with all the ta how much tax we pay and how the government have fucked the country up. I mean, I know it's not been easy, but I mean, it's, it's, they're such a joke. It makes me really angry, and I have to speak about it. And I speak about it, and it goes wildly viral, and then I get a slap from a channel, <laughs> you know, a bitch slap. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, fucking here we go again. And I'll build it up again. And it seems to be a bit of a cycle for me. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd avoid the real controversial edges if you could. Stick to your niche. Don't try doing things that are going to get you in trouble when you're trying to build at the start. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to know what's going to get you in trouble and not. And also, sometimes the edgier stuff is the most viral. But you can have edgy stuff that's viral that isn't going to piss off the systems and the platforms and get you demonetized. And sometimes that's a bit of trial and error. You know, watch the more extreme people and, and find out what things they say that they say they can't say. But, you know, when, when COVID happened, there was all sorts of words you couldn't say otherwise that would just kill your channel. And the goalpost you know, would move. Yeah, COVID, vaccine, you know, whatever. It was really weird. It was a really, um, really weird time. But also the, the ability to blow up and go viral was quite high as well. 
you know, one of my biggest bugbears with creators now is they're like, oh, Kane, okay, am I shadow banned? And they're talking about like knitting or some shit. And it's like, yeah. no, no, look at Rob's channel. Look at what he got away with on this. Like, no, you're yeah. just not marketing it enough. Like, what else do you see from creators, like, especially when you have calls with people, you've got clients, like, what are they doing wrong? How, why are they not scaling? Um, well, they're really overwhelmed. They're trying to make everything perfect. Oh, I want autoresponder emails and I want all these, these funnels and I want, you know, all these systems and CRMs and I've got to make it look really great. And they're, they're spending loads of time on all this shit that doesn't bring in any money. Like I could bring in hundreds of thousands of pounds on my own, just banging a camera there, chucking a Facebook Live, sending them to a Zoom that I set up five minutes before. I've got my own Zoom account because we've got, accounts and assets fucking everywhere in this business <laughs> but i've got my own little zoom account and i i can go in it and i can say how to make 10 grand a month on 10 hours a week and i could give five bullets and i can do the time and the date and i can enable it to record on the cloud and i can schedule it and it can give me a link and i can just go to tiny and create a tiny link out of that that i could read like tiny.cc forward slash aimc for our ai masterclass I'll just go live on Facebook. I'll talk about something in the news and I'll bridge in and I'll pitch my um, AI masterclass and then I'll do a few lines of text telling people to type yes if they're interested in joining me on this Zoom while they learn A, B, C, D and E. And, and I regularly get 1,500 to 3,500 registrations on, on a low one, 1,050 on a Zoom. That's a lot of people. I don't have funnels, autoresponders, GDPR compliant, this, that, and the other, landing pages, sales pages, yada, yada, yada. So people way overcomplicate everything. Get a good agency that does all of the outsourcing stuff, admin, uploading, show notes, you know, editing, all of that for you. Put, be more prolific with your content. Um, elegantly drive people from your podcast to your membership site or your podcast to your YouTube channel. As they grow, you'll attract sponsors in on your podcast. Um, and so the money will start to go up. And as you get more people, your Zooms and your masterclasses and masterminds will grow. And you can do it relatively simply. People overcomplicate the fuck out of everything. It's, it's active procrastination. They want to stay busy, but they're avoiding doing things that they think is hard. Whatever you think is hard to do, go and do it. You know, this morning, as I said, coming on off coffee, I don't want to bang on about it. It's quite a big thing for me because I was fucking hardcore crack addicted to it. Um, and I felt grey and fuzzy and... But I got in the... I went in my garden and I did a pretty hard workout. And I was like, oh, I just want to go back to bed. And then I got in the ice bath and I've spent four minutes in that fucking thing. My testicles are like there. <laughs> like, and... And then I thought, fucking hell, my brain is not really on it. I don't want to let Kane and Ash down. I think I might need to cancel that. I've got about four meetings. I think I should get... And I'm like, no, I got in the car and I got in here and I'm here and I'm doing it. And it's not easy. It's painful. And I'm like, fuck, how, how am I coming across as the normal sharp me? I don't know, but I'm doing it anyway. And that's what people have got to do. Just fucking go live and talk. It, like have a few notes just behind the phone there. So you've, cause you know, I, I don't just go live and go, wow, and genius comes out. You know, I'll often have five or six bullet points. I'll just put the, have the little Joby tripod. I'll put it like on my laptop and the notes will be just there. So I don't have to like look away when I'm doing a live and I have a, a little system and you can go live for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, 
and then fairly easy, especially if you have a good agency, you can chuck that content there and they can do four or five clips from that. Don't overthink it. There you go, guys. Secret to being a millionaire. Cheers, Rob. Three-minute Facebook lives. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I've got one final question. What creators don't you like? What's your beef with Stephen Bartlett? Because I know he's messed your podcast about a little bit. I respect um, how much energy and resource and money and focus Stephen Bartlett has put into the diary of a CEO. Um, and I always like to champion successful, proactive, productive people. We had him on our show a good while back. He was great and friendly and let's do this and let's do that and let's connect and come on my show. And then he just fucking blanked us and that pissed me off a bit. But then I thought, well, yeah, other people probably do that. I've probably done that before. So, well, whatever. And then, you know, you hear him doing the round saying he's never paid a guest. When I know for a fact he pays guests big money. I know this for a fact. Um, I've in... I've had a dozen people who we've either tried to get on this own show and have said, well, Stephen Bartler paid us X cubed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he and others have made it harder to get guests because they're chucking big money down. I have no problem with that. It's a commercial business. It just pisses me off a bit that they're going around lying about it. Oh, I never pay for a guest. Well, I know you've paid 25 grand for this guest and 25 grand for that guest. And I, I'm, there's no point naming them, but. Yeah, I know this for a fact and I've had this checked out. I just think it's bullshit and, and it just annoys me a bit. But I don't want to come across like sour grapes. The guy's done really well and, um, you know, fair play. Just cut the bullshit. That's all I'd say. But I don't think there's really any beef. You know, we all have things that piss us off. And yeah, I think... Like if people ask me if I have guests on the show that have been paid, I'll give them a rough estimate. Oh, maybe 70, 75% free, 25% paid. And they can ask me some, you know, I didn't pay for Robert Kiyosaki, didn't pay for Will I Am, paid a little bit of money for John Fury and Paris Fury. Sometimes I'll pay money just to make it happen quicker because I know it could happen next year but it'd be quicker for pay a bit of money. Um, and there's always cost because you've got the venues and everything else. And I like to feel like I'm quite open about that. And he's not. They're just pissing me off. I like you, isn't it? Yeah. And I like the fact that you call it commercial business because I don't think a lot of creators do. It's like, oh, I want fame. I want followers. I want the money, but they won't invest in it. I think for a lot of these people, like you didn't pay for Andrew Tate, but fine, you had to go over to Dubai. So there's a cost there. Yeah. And take but, Harry with me. Yeah. And exactly. on business class. Well, you didn't have to take it. <laughs> that was optional, Rob. Did, what, am I going to video myself? I had to take Harry. Not business. <laughs> you could have put him down. He fucking loved it. Yeah, yeah. I bet he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a foodie, so I wasn't even to love that. Yeah. Um, but it's, you got 30 grand back in the first month. And then whatever the long tail of those videos can potentially produce. So it's money in, money out. And I think more creators need to look at it as an expense like that. And Mr. Beast, everything he makes from the sponsorship gets put into that video to make the biggest video. And then he... Yeah, an investment. So we have a, a little rule in, um, in our brand disruptors whereby all the sponsorship money we get, I'll reinvest back into the guests. 
So, you know, if we get 20 grand this month, that's the budget. If we get 50 grand next month, that's the budget. And I think that's quite a good way of doing it because what you can't do is not invest and pocket all the money and expect to grow. You can't. And the game has changed. Like, there are a few regrets. I mean, I don't really regret things, but going back, I should have pushed harder to get guests because it was probably easier than I thought back then um, to get quite big names. And now you've got people like Bartlett and Simon Jordan who are just chucking funny money, probably from some stupid gambling firm or something like that. That pisses me off as well when there's gambling firms on back in all these podcasts and fucking unethical practices. That pisses me off. But anyway, um, there are all these gambling firms chucking loads of money at them and they're chucking... Oh, you know, we've, got, we've had some guests that I would regard as relatively C-list, oh, five grand and 10 grand, 15 grand. I'm like, fucking hell, I'm in the wrong business. Mm -hmm. um, so the game has changed and, you, you know, you don't, you, it's not like you have to put your hand in your pocket for every guest. Like you said, Kate Hopkins, no fee. Andrew Tate, no fee. David Icke, no fee. Um, Will I Am, no fee. Macy Williams, no fee. Um, Robert Kiyosaki, no fee. Great guests. Yeah, big names. Big names, no fee. But you have to work to get them. So you want to be creative on, and persistent, um, but sometimes every now and again dropping a bit of money for a good guest, which you might be able to use for your own marketing purposes, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss it. Can you talk to me about the handwritten letter? Yeah, so um, people don't throw away handwritten letters. And you get a load of mail and you chuck it in the bin and you get a load of spam on your emails and messages and it annoys you. But if you get a handwritten letter in a nice blue embossed envelope, written almost in calligraphy with a wax seal and smells like lilac. Are you going to chuck that in the bin? No. All right, maybe I'm going a bit heavy on what we actually do. <laughs> got a big disruption stuff yeah, in the yeah, bottom yeah. right. <laughs> um, so... We've been handwriting letters to get guests and we get, you get really good engagement getting guests with handwritten letters. Now what I do is I offer my community, I pay, I think, £5 a letter to my community who've got kids with neat handwriting and I outsource the letter writing to them and then one of my researchers finds the addresses. But, yeah, we've got quite a lot of good guests from letter writing. It's just how scalable can you make it, how many can you write? But... You know, if you could get your kids doing it and pay them two, three, five quid a letter, whatever you think, you know, you might get 20 letters a day done. You know, what's that in a year? How many guests are you going to get from that? And, you know, guests are pitched all the time. So things that are different and uh, innovative and make them stop and think, you know, this is, um, this is how you stand out. Very disruptive of you. There you go. Actually, I, I would need to get a, disru a D, Disruptor's Wax Seal. There you go. That's Christmas what we need to get. The yeah, yeah. Have you ever had uh, a response? Do you get a lot of... Yeah, we get quite a lot of responses. I mean, I have a whole team that deal with the incoming, so they don't personally come to me. Yeah, we've got lots of great guests from the show. I remember Noel Clark. Um, he was like, oh, that, the letters just got me. I remember getting a reply from Vivian Westwood, David Attenborough, all sorts of interesting people, yeah. Do they write back? Yeah, I mean, David... David Attenborough has declined me like three times. He, <laughs> he always writes a lovely flowing letter like this. Nice. And it's like, I don't like getting rejected, but I love getting rejected by David Attenborough. Have you framed it? <laughs> yeah, yes. still, yeah, keep the rejection letters. You coming up with another way to try and get him before I'm lucky? Yeah. Well, I mean, he fucking, he's doing well, isn't he? He's like 95 or something. 
Yeah, I would love to listen to a podcast with David. Yeah. I wouldn't even care what he's talking about, just yeah. his voice. Talk yeah, I'd love to have him on, but keeps telling us no. Well, Rob, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.